Tiny Life, chapter 25, Parakaf Hay. And in this chapter, we are going to be wrapping up and trimming the edges of a seven-chapter sequence, which began in chapter 18 and concludes in chapter 25. Going forward, we're going to start a whole new journey, a whole new era in Natalia's narrative. So this chapter serves mostly as a, a wrap-up. And we begin with a story, a short anecdote, a story that took place in the 1950s in the Rebbe's private audience, the Rebbe's office, where a rabbi from a small town somewhere in New England brought with him two boys to see the Rebbe, two boys who were right before their bar mitzvah. It was in the summer months, right before the Rebbe Mitzvah, a few months before. At a time when the Rebbe was, shall we say, much more accessible, definitely private audiences one-on-one was available. And these two boys had the merit of, of having a private audience before the Rebbe Mitzvah, before their big day. And standing with their teacher who taught them their Rebbe Mitzvah Parshas, the Rebbe went on to Ask them, tell me, points to the first one, what's your bar mitzvah parsha? So the boy says his bar mitzvah parsha is parsha's noach, the second parsha in the whole Torah. It is right after the first Shabbos, after uh, or the second Shabbos, after Simlasara, after the high holidays, after Tishrei. And the second boy says his parsha is parsha's lech lecha, the week after, the third, cha- uh, the, the fir- the third pa- parsha in the entire Torah. Then they were asked them if they're going to be going to yeshiva. So they both said, no, we're going to high school, public high school. So they asked them, why are you going to public school and not going to yeshiva? They come from traditional homes. It should be pretty natural that they should go to yeshiva. So these two boys lived in a small town in New England, not in New York City or the like. And they both told the rabbi, they, were, they lived obviously in the same area, they said, none of our neighbors are going to yeshiva. All of our neighbors, all of our friends are going to public school. So the rabbi turned to one boy and says, what would Nayach, what would happen if Nayach would have done what all the neighbors on the block did? Where would the world be? As we know the story of Noach, that he was the only one saved in the great flood because he's the only one who had a moral, um, had a, the, the moral clarity, the instruction from Hashem, not to go in the ways of his neighbors, the immorality that, that was taking place all around him. And the end, humanity, all come, all stem from, from Noach's seed because he was the one, him and his family were the ones to, to be saved. Then the Rebbe turned to the second um, boy and said, where would the world be if Avram did what everyone on his block was doing? Avram, the father of monotheism, the one who taught the world that there's one God. Where would the world be if he was doing what everyone on the block was doing? So, and I say this story because it is just one glimmer, 
just one single anecdote from an entire generation, an entire generational um, um, generational mandate and a generational and the, the feeling of our generation, which is very, very different from the generations gone by. Historically, the Jewish people have been a persecuted people. The very fact that there's not one serious um, there's not one serious um, uh, crackdown or, or um, pressure from any governmental body on the Jewish religion that we have in the world today is a complete novelty, historically. It's a complete novelty. Historically, the Jewish people have every single generation, every single generation, either the entire world or half the world, but definitely large swaths of Jewish people have been under persecution for being Jewish, for practicing Judaism. And part and parcel of Jewish existence and religion and identity and therefore also um, legends and stories and anecdotes which have passed through the generations have been either stories about or have touched upon the notion of mesiras nefesh, which means sacrificing yourself for a higher calling, for God, for the Torah, for Judaism, which is unfortunately was a part of life for, 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 for thousands of years. Mesiris Nefesh, giving yourself, literally giving your life for your religion. It is only recently, talking about just the, just, just the most recent time, most recent period, where Mesiris Nefesh, this notion of giving up your life, becomes much more rare, much more rare. We don't hear stories. It's not part of part and parcel of our life. But the Rebbe taught that something has come to replace it. It's not that this notion of Mesiris Nefesh, which is the highest calling in any religion, by the way, in any religion, right? Giving up your life for your religion, that's the highest calling you can do. It's the ultimate self-sacrifice. So this giving up your life, this notion has not disappeared. It just comes in a new form. It just comes in a new form. And that is living like a Jew, not dying like a Jew. And living like a Jew can take tremendous self-sacrifice, something which is called in this Mesiris Haratzain, which means sacrificing your want, your will, your desires, sacrificing social pressures, sacrificing just regular normative life. And you live, we're living in a time when it's so open, so accessible, freedom, liberty. This, this is the call to hour, and, 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 and the Jewish people have... The, freedom to do whatever they want. So free can they be that it's so easy to assimilate. So that's the calling of the hour. That's the calling of this generation. And it all stems from this chapter in Tanya, this idea. So chapter 25 wraps up the narrative of chapters 20 to 25, or more largely 18 to 19, 18 to 25, 18 to 19 to 25. And so we're just going to give a synopsis for just 10 minutes. You give a synopsis of where we're holding. What have these seven chapters come in, coming to prove? What are they coming to deliver to our lives? After the first chapters of Tanya, 
Dr. Rebbe spoke about the ideal, where we should be. He classified this as, with the word Benini, a characterization of a, of a Jew, a person whose thoughts, speech, and actions are perfect. Thoughts, your speech, and your actions are all for God. They're not for anything of the opposite. That was all the who. The what, the who. Then, from 18 to 25 was the how. More importantly, that the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, should tell you what your ideal is, what the ideal Jew is, what your purpose is in this world. I have to tell you how to attain that. How can I make anyone attain that purpose? Which, as we learn, is a, quite a high calling. That all your actions should be perfect. All your speech should be perfect. Thoughts should be perfect. It's not easy. Is there a way that this could be accessible? And so says the Alter Rebbe, yes, there is a way. And I'm going to teach you this way right now. Seven chapters worth. Chapters 18 and 19 set the tone that every single Jew by birth, if you have a Jewish soul, we spoke about this is the definition of a Jew. If you have a Jewish soul, whether you're Jewish by birth or you're converted into the faith, either way, you have a Jewish soul. If you have a Jewish mother or you are logically converted, you have a Jewish soul. A Jewish soul comes part and parcel inherently is infused with something called Ahava Mesuteris, the hidden love, the dormant love. And this dormant love is the connection, the immutable connection between a Jew and, and, and God, like the connection between a father and a child. You can never get rid of it. Proof, historically we see, that many of these times where Jews were required to give up their life, mingled within the population, or Jews who had no connection to Judaism until up to that point. So we're talking about people who couldn't kill us, who had no connection, furthest as you could think, from even the most major aspects of their religion, like Yom Kippur and the like. But when it came to the moment of truth, they gave up their life, so that's proof, positive, historical proof, that such a thing exists, that a Jew has a connection to the he can't give up. Okay. How do we access that? So said the Alter Rebbe like this. There is seven points. Okay, all breaks down to seven points. Point number one. We all have our red lines. We all have our red lines. Everyone has their red lines. Everyone has the line where they say, I'm not going to do this. I'll go up to the red line, but not beyond it. Everyone's red line is somewhere else. Some people have a very high red line, very moral, upstanding people. Some people have a very low uh, red line. They'll, they'll really fall and, uh, and do many acts that could be repulsive, but they still have a red line. They won't cross a certain point. This red line could be rational or irrational. It could be something that a person acquired and decided, you know what? I, I, this, is, this is what I consider immoral for me. This is what I consider as sinful. I can't go past this line. Beforehand... I consider it for whatever rational thought the person has, he's, up, he's willing to go up the red light. Or it could be irrational. It's not something that you came to a conclusion mentally. You were either born that way, you were nurtured that way, you grew up in a certain society. The society we, 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 uh, we grew up in gives us a certain red line. Gives us a certain red line. It's a red line you wouldn't cross. And everyone has one, by the way. Even the most 
uh, disgusting people, they all have their red line. For a Jew, the most, the lowest common denominator amongst the Jews, the lowest common denominator, okay? Because everyone has red lines in different areas, but the lowest common denominator is disconnecting from God. Overtly disconnecting from God. Okay, that's the lowest common denominator as we see. Okay, that's number one you should know. Point number two, says Dr. Rebbe, how do we utilize that red line? How are we able to utilize, wheel the fact that we have a red line that we won't cross? Can we use that, the energy of stopping, that, that energy that makes us stop? Can we tap into it even not at the lowest common denominator? Can we tap into it? Can we utilize it? Can we create a red line for ourselves? Can the red line mean something even for not disconnection from God? Is there a way we can tap into it? Okay. This is going to be the external versus the internal. The external means that I bring you to a, as an external force, whether it's someone coming to you literally with a sword or a gun or threatening that I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to literally take your life unless you disconnect from God. That's an external force which forces us to, we say no, right? We say no, an external force. Are we able to, 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 to arouse the red line maybe internally? Are we able, if there's no external force, there's no one threatening us with, their life, with, with our life. Now, where's that most inner connection? Where is it revealed? It's revealed in a moment of truth. What does a moment of truth look like in the traditional sense? If you're standing before the sword and you're given the choice, either disconnect from Hashem or, 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 be, or be, you know, off with your head. That's the most traditional, that's the moment of truth. You got to decide. Who are you? And your essence, your essence comes out then. The question is, can we reenact the moment of truth without all this drama? Can we reenact the moment of truth without any external factors? Can you as a person internally bring out at any moment that you are tempted to do an avera, tempted to do a sin, can you have your moment of truth? Can you say, absolutely not, I cannot disconnect myself from Hashem at this point. That is going to be, that's going to be the avoid, that's going to be the, 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 the quest. That's the quest over here. Says the author Rabbi, of course, of course, there is a way human beings are built that there's definitely a way that you can have an internal pressure, internal pressure to uncover your red light at any minute, that you, at any moment of life that you want, and not have to wait on the external pressure. You know where that internal pressure could be? That internal pressure is going to come from your brain. It's going to come from your brain. Right? Because the red line is really an impulse, an instinct from your heart. If someone is pressuring you from the outside, giving you the ultimatum, it's going to squeeze you, it's going to pressure you, that you're at some, like when you squeeze an olive, what happens when you squeeze an olive, you get out, the oil. You squeeze a grape, you get out the wine. So it's going to squeeze you as a person, it's going to pressure you back into the corner. Now you need to make a choice now. Your essence will come out. You can do, you can reenact that as well yourself within yourself using your brain. Why? Why your brain? Because out of all the human faculties you have in your body, your brain is the most objective. It's the most outside of your subjective self. The brain has the power, unlike the other, the heart, as we say, 
the heart makes things very relatable to you. Makes things, that's where your passion is. Right? That make that, that, that's where the drive is. But the brain is cold, calculated, and objective. At least as objective as can be. So if you use your brain, your brain has the power, has that special access to think certain thoughts, to put yourself through a mental process, which could pressure, internal pressure, you think these thoughts which could crack open what's lying inside that dormant love that it should be aroused and it could arouse your red line at any moment. So how, is, how would this work in, the, in the real life? Okay, You're approaching a minor sin. A minor sin. Not such a major thing. Not something that you consider a moment of truth. Now is the test. Are you with God or not? No one feels that throughout their life, right? That doesn't really come up. The moment of truth. Here's your test. Are you with God or are you not? Can you reenact that pressure on yourself? Even for a minor sin? Even for, you know, just uh, cutting corners a bit. Or are you going to say something in terms of uh, between you and, uh, and your fellow? You'll say something that's not going to, that's not such a bad word. That's not such a bad message. You're just going to tease them a bit. You're going to make them a little bit upset, right? Just rough around the edges. You're not doing the major sins. You're doing the minor sin, right? You're just going to do, you're just going to break Shabbos in a, in a minor way, not a major way, you know, just something, something minor that you don't feel that you're disconnecting yourself from Hashem forever and ever at this moment, you know. Yes, Alter says, yes, I will give you a mental process to go through you go through this mental process, you think about it, you contemplate it, and you will come to a realization, A, a realization X, and this realization will arouse within you the red line that's laying dormant, that Avon Mesoteris. How does this mental process go? So point number three, point number four, the mental process is basically in four acts. Act number one, recognize the true nature of things, the true nature of creation, the true nature of the world. The true nature of the world is what we call Achtos Hashem, which means the unity of Hashem. The unity of Hashem means, in English, not just that there's no other God, but there's no other existence. There's only one existence. All of creation is really only one existence of God, does not have an independent existence. That's act number one. Act number two. If so, then the very fact that we see the world as independent existence, we see all the elements of the world as independent existence, is because Hashem is giving us, positively giving us, a specific view. A specific view of how we should view Him. He gives us the view of concealment, the view of revealment. Hashem, it's all Hashem. It's all God. But God manifests either in revealment or concealment. In the physical world, concealment is the rules of the day. Most things are here concealment of Hashem. Because it's concealment of Hashem, so therefore... We interpret it, we interpret it, and God gives us this power of interpretation. We interpret these objects as having independent existence. We don't see godliness when we look at this cup. We don't see it. Why? Because there's almost utter concealment of God here. If there would be a little more revealment of God, we wouldn't see a cup. We would see the, the spiritual energy that makes up a cup. And if there would be a little more revealment, we wouldn't, we wouldn't even see the spiritual energy that makes up a cup. We would see even a higher source. We would see God himself. We can't see that. We see the concealment of Hashem. Okay. But you should understand that it's the concealment of Hashem. It's not like a cup is actually a cup. Hashem conceals himself, so therefore we have other existences. That's act number two. Act number three. If that is the framework of how we should understand the world, 
then that translates also into application. If the whole world is either a revealment or concealment of Hashem, if it's so binary like that, then also the application, the way we engage with the world is either also very binary. It's either connection or disconnection. Everything is either connection or disconnection. Everything is either disconnection or connection. That's how we have to look at it. Any act they'll do, any object in this world is either, if it brings towards more revealment of Hashem, it's connection. If it brings more concealment of Hashem, it's disconnection. Even if it's not bad, even if you're not doing a bad act, an evil act, if it's not bringing more revealment of Hashem, it's a disconnection, right? Act number four, therefore rationally, if you take it to its logical conclusion, even the most minor sins are the most major catastrophes. Because it's disconnection. Right? The famous uh, uh, parable that we gave, husband and the wife, which is a great parable because it's about relationship with Hashem, right? It's a husband, wife. Act number one, scene number one, the husband is unfaithful to the wife. He cheats on her. Obviously, everyone agrees that that is grounds for a separation, a severing of the relationship, right? You actually fundamentally eroded the relationship. You went on to someone else. Okay, everyone agrees. Scene number two, here gets a little, a little more complicated. The wife constantly asks the husband, please, I'm asking you. She already said this seven times, eight times. When you take out the garbage, put in a new garbage bag. One morning she wakes up, there's no empty, empty, garbage, empty garbage bin. The husband didn't do what she asked eight times. Is this grounds for divorce? In a healthy relationship, normal, normal people know, right? It's not that extreme. It's not that extreme. Doing such an act is not severing the relationship. It's not a disconnection. He just didn't listen. But if you look at it on its true, deeper level, there's really no substance, substance, substantive difference between this not listening to your wife or completely going with someone else. Why? Because the common denominator is, is that he's not thinking about her. He's not connected. He's not, why does it take eight times to process the most simple act? Right? The guy doesn't ever forget his lunch. In 35 years, never forgot lunch. Why do you never forget lunch? Because it means something to you. This doesn't mean something to you. Right? So obviously, there's a difference in the sin. We're not taking that away. But in terms of your relationship... If you look in terms of the relationship, not the actual action, towards your relationship, you're cutting out her from the picture. So, same thing with Hashem. There's obviously a difference between the grand moment of truth. Are you going to disconnect yourself with Hashem? Are you going to convert out of your religion or die? That is like, if you decide to go to a different religion, that's disconnecting yourself. That, that, that's cheating on the relationship. Obviously, that's, that's, that, that's major. Everyone agrees that's called disconnection. But even doing a small sin... Uh, so I'm not disconnected from the relationship. I still care about God. I'm still a religious person. I still, I still care about Judaism. I still donate to, to, to trees in Israel. I still, I still do a lot of the tikkun olam. I still come three times a day to show. So I'm just doing this one sin. Yes, but at the moment, you're disconnecting. You're disconnecting. If we would view every single action that we did with this barometer, either connecting or disconnecting, and we didn't get confused, confused, by the fact that there should be any differences, then we would arouse a red line every moment. Because the red line is what again? 
never disconnect. You cannot disconnect from Hashem. You can't. If you just view it in its correct view, you wouldn't disconnect. Now, we said this is the rational, logical conclusion. So the question is, how come we all experience um, doing sin, unfortunately? Why is that? The reason is, and this is number, this is number, uh, this is number six. The reason is because, as our sages say, when a person approaches a sin, he is overcome by ruach shtos. He's overcome by a spirit of folly. A third party, a spirit overcomes them and it clouds their judgment. In other words, if a person had clear, crystal, rational thinking at every moment, they would never sin. I do never sin. It's disconnecting myself. Why would I cheat? Why would I cheat on this relationship? I want this relationship. I love this relationship. Your soul is a, a part of Hashem. It's much, it's much deeper than a husband and wife. Much deeper. No one would do that. The only reason why someone would sin is because there's a rush dust. There is a spirit that overcomes them at the moment of passion. And at the moment, the spirit says, switches off your rational brain. And what are you thinking? Eh, nothing's going to happen if I do this. Nothing's going to happen. I'm not going to disconnect. Nothing's going to happen if I don't put back the garbage. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. Right? It, 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 that kind of thinking is a foolish thinking. It's not a rational, logical way of thinking. And so it needs removal. You need to remove the shell. The spirit overcomes the rational brain. It overcomes the, the rational way of thinking. In order to remove it, in order to remove it, if you have a constant reflection, if you go through these four acts in your mind and you learn and you delve into them and you constantly delve into them again and again, again, the four acts are there's something called Achtas Hashem, which is Hashem is all, the only existence. Number two, therefore, everything in this world is, has a binary um, has a binary is, is in, within a binary framework. Either it's connect, either it's revealment or concealment. Number three, therefore, the application is everything you're going to do is either disconnect or connection. Therefore, there should be no difference between any sins. If you go through those four ideas in your mind, which are laid out in these five chapters again and again and again, slowly but surely, it's going to be something that you can reflect on more easily, more easily, more accessibly. At any moment, it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy, but there is a path. If you can go through the process mentally, what happens is because the human being is created in such a way that your brain is the highest faculty, your mind is the highest faculty, your mind controls your emotions, your mind controls your actions, you just have to let your mind control you. You have to align yourself with that. You have to, we usually we let our impulse take over. That's how usually, but your mind, no matter even if you're going 10, 20 years of your impulses driving your life, at any moment you could still get your brain to take control because that's by nature. That's how it is. If you use your brain, use your mind, go through this thinking, you will recognize the truth of even the minor sins, quote-unquote, and you'll be able to have your red line come before your eyes at any moment. Again, it could be internal. You can give yourself an internal pressure. Use your mind to... To bring that up, you don't have to wait for a moment of truth that comes externally. This is the how. The chapters between 20 and 25 is the how. It's the how of what I will call the removal. It posits and assumes something very simple. That the Ahava Mesoteris, the hidden love, that's within your, that's, in, that's, that's inherently in your soul, this 
dormant love doesn't need to be necessarily aroused. Doesn't need to be. You don't have to turn up a fire necessarily. You just have to remove what's covering it. Rationally, a person would live with their with their ava misoteros, with their with their hidden love, on a daily basis. It's only because of the rashtus you have to remove it. You use your brain to remove it. You exercise, do the mental exercise. We are going to learn in later chapters, between 43 and 50, the later chapters, we're going to get there. We're going to learn different other methods of how to arouse your Avim Soteris, which are going to be the methods of arousal. Not removal, but arousal. Just a different way. Everyone's different. Every mind is different. Every heart is different. Everyone connects with a different idea. So there's going to be between chapters 43 and 50, different um, uh, methods, literally different mental methods, different things to think different things to contemplate that could activate your other mysterious act, activate that dormant love in the, the action of arousal. And we're also going to have a special treat, also chapters 41, 42, before we start, 43 is going to talk about another category within your heart, which is largely, we haven't spoken about, which is Yira, which is the, uh, a different, different type of relationship with Hashem, not love, but awe. Okay, that's going to come later. At least for now, we've wrapped up the first section of how. The Alter Rebbe promised, I'm not just going to tell you what the goal is, but I'm going to tell you how to get there. And he delivered on his promise. Now, so as I said, this uh, chapter wraps up, but it also trims the edges. Okay? It gives a nice ending. So there's just a, a, a very interesting idea before the conclusion that the Alter Rebbe brings out over here, and that is the notion of Echteva Asho. Which, as it's known, which means I will sin and I will repent. The person who makes a calculation, I'll sin and I'll repent later. As we know, one of the greatest gifts given. So great is this gift that it's calculated to be even more, um, even more um, um, significant than Torah itself is the gift of tshuva. As Kabbalah teaches us, that the Torah is the Torah. But Teshuvah is even higher than the rest of the Torah. Teshuvah is the power to always return to God. God will always forgive. So the principle is that God will always forgive anyone everywhere. Now our sages say that apparently there's actually some exceptions to this rule. And what's the exception? There's a person who says, you know what? I'll sin and I'll be forgiven later. Because God says that he'll always forgive me. So I'll sin, I'll be forgiven later. So it just two Two elements of this, either from the from the lotasa, from negative commandments, or from the tasa, from the positive commandments. So it says the Alter Rebbe, it's just interesting to note that we brought up the scene, we brought up the imagery of the person who has the moment of truth. The moment of truth is given the ultimatum. Either you lose your life or you renounce your faith. Now at that moment, just to analyze the choices of this guy. Because really, maybe he's not backed into a corner. Maybe he's not backed into a corner. Just, just think about it. He could just make a calculation. I'll renounce my faith and the truth later. So, first you have to understand that, that um, the very fact that you historically have stories of people who did not make that calculation, right? who did not make that calculation, already tells you that this red line that you don't want to disconnect is not just for eternity. I don't want to disconnect for eternity. It's also, I don't want to disconnect for even a moment. 
the very fact that we want to make that calculation. Now you can tell me people can't make can't make that calculation. Not allowed to make that calculation because our sages say that uh, a person who makes that calculation can never do tshuva. Says the Alter Rebbe, no, that's not the way you understand it. Our sages say that you are not helped to do tshuva. Heaven doesn't give you the opportunities, but if you on your own, running against the current, fighting against the grain. You fight to do teshuvah later, the door is always open. The door is always open. So again, even the person who technically can make the calculation, you know what, I'll just sin and do teshuvah later. At the end of the day, he still could do teshuvah. There's still an opportunity for him. It's just going to be very hard. But historically, we see that people did not, did not make that calculation, telling us something, an interesting fact, that this red line is not just a calculation that I don't want to be disconnected for eternity, it's even the calculation, I don't want to be disconnected even for a moment. Even for a moment. Because the difference between a mitzvah and an avera is that a mitzvah is for eternity. If you do a mitzvah, you do a mitzvah, it takes you a second. That second remains for eternity because on the spiritual plane, it's much higher than any time. Right? Spiritual, just the, 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 the spiritual realms are higher than time. So it remains for eternity. But Avera, a sin, is only done in this world and it can always be rectified. There's no such thing as it li- it for eternity. It's only for a moment. So you can imagine our red line is that strong that even a disconnection for a moment, even with the option of doing Teshuvah later, which is an option, it's a very hard option, but it is, it was ne- never occurred to anybody. But also another fact, another answer to this is that um, as the author Abba says, that this red line actually serves a dual function. Not only does it stop you from doing an Avera, but if you have the relationship aroused and your relationship Hashem, between you and Hashem is something tangible in that, in to, in, to such an extent that it would stop you from doing even a small Avera and you're arousing at any moment, it also functions for the positive. It also means that you want to do mitzvahs, not just not do Averas. You want to do mitzvahs. You're going to be looking for mitzvahs every opportunity, right? Now, um, what's interesting is, is that there is a mitzvah that is actually mandated at every moment. You know what that mitzvah is? I mean, there's actually a few mitzvahs that you have at every moment, but definitely the most famous one is learning Torah. Do you know, this may scare you, but the mitzvah of learning Torah does not have any time limits and does not have any specific moment. Most mitzvahs have their time and place. In the morning, we turn on tefillin. And on uh, and, and Friday, we light Shabbos candles. And that's almost every mitzvah. But learning Torah, when do you learn Torah? Every waking moment that you're not doing any bodily, necessary bodily functions or making a living to support yourself. So I heard that, for example, there is a, uh, someone told me he went to Tzvas went to the, the city of Safed, Tzvas. And they told him that there's a certain Israeli Jew, middle-aged guy, who makes the best falafel in the entire country. He has a little bit of like a cart, a stand, a little like a, a closet in some, uh, in some hole. And uh, the best falafel. Okay. So about 1.30 in the afternoon, he's touring with his family. He's like, they're looking for this place. Can't find it. Well, they told me it's here. They can't find it. They're asking around, where's that falafel shop? So he said, ah, it's right here. It shows him a place where it's uh, 
it's closed. He said, that's it. So he's like, what's going on? It's one thirty. Why is it closed? So the local told them that this guy knows exactly how much he needs to make to support his family, put away for the weddings and the, and the mortgage or whatever it is. He has it down to the T, how much he has to make on a daily basis. The moment he makes that shekel, closes up and goes to Torah. Okay, just to give you that imagery. Now, most of us, it's, uh, it's, um, it's known as the, the sin of Bittal Torah, which is wasting time, not using the lighting of the Torah. It's something that says that even the, the greatest people are, are not, uh, are not um, safe from. Because every moment, it's just really Torah. There could be so many moments. So, it is for this reason that our sages enacted three times a day in the Shemineshrei, in the Amidah, in the prayer that we have 18 blessings, the core of our davening. One of the blessings is Slach Lanu, please forgive us. So it's a small paragraph. So we're asking three times a day from God, please forgive us. Forgive us for what? It says forgive us for our sins, right? So you're asking three times a day, forgive us for our sins. But we do have moments in the year where there are forgiven, forgiven, uh, they're, they're forgiving uh, days. Yom Kippur, Elul. Our sages say that Slach Lanu is for the Avera of Bittal Torah. Because between the morning prayer and the afternoon prayer, there was some hours over there that you couldn't always do the Bittal Torah. So can you imagine, okay? Imagine this. Imagine that you have a friend or a child, some sort of relationship in your life, okay? And you tell them, please don't do something. Or please do something, okay? And the entire day, they're annoying you. The entire day, they're doing exactly what you ask them not to do. But three times a day, they ask you for forgiveness. Okay, how long is this going to last? Okay, I just want to imagine, okay? How long is this going to last, okay? Please stop clicking your pen, okay? The whole day is clicking your pen, right, in your ear. But three times a day, he says, Mommy, I'm sorry. No problem. Click, 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 click. Three times a day. What's going to happen? You're not going to last a day. So wh- what are we expecting from God, right? Since he gives us a certain mandate, and three times a day we're asking for forgiveness. What's going on over here? What's going on over here? So as, uh, as a, a, rabbi, a rabbi noted recently that um, you can learn from your GPS the relationship between us and God because every time you make the wrong turn, the GPS in the same monotone, the same regular voice recalculating. Never gets angry, never shouts, never says I'm done. Recalculating, recalculating. And some people, they're recalculating many times. But the point is, is that Hashem forgives with a full heart again and again and again. Now you ask, isn't this the same principle of Echtevashu? Isn't it the same principle of you're doing an Avera just to be forgiven? You literally have it in a prayer book. We already know that the prayer that we're going to say next has the sloth lono because we already know that we have to ask forgiveness. Like, what is it, some sort of joke? So the Altar says an insight, another insight over here, that the principle of calculating that you're going to do a sin and then be forgiven only applies when you're making the calculation at the moment of sin. At that actual moment, not just in theory, not just in general, at that actual moment, why? Because you're only doing the sin because you have the option of tshuva. 
In other words, that option of tshuva, the option of repentance, is enabling you to do the sin. So if that's enabling you to sin, then then it becomes then it goes off the table. It's off the table. Anything that enables you to do a sin is part of the sin. Anything, right? Anything that's going to enable you to do that, it all gets included. In fact, we have the principle: you shouldn't help someone do a sin because you you're enabling them. So you have a portion in your part in it. Okay, but that only applies when it's at the moment. At every moment, we're not making that calculation. And just in general, just in general, we in general, we know we can always be forgiven. So therefore, again and again, we could ask God, by Shrinesre, please forgive us. And this applies to everything. This applies to every Yom Kippur. Every Yom Kippur, everyone has this. There are some sins we got better at. There are some sins that we've been doing for the past 25 years. It's still there, right? Every Yom Kippur. You end the Yom Kippur, and a Jew instinctively knows Hashem forgave him for the 25th time. Because, why is this? Because it's a relationship that's deeper and more connected than any relationship you could ever think of. So that trims the edges, that concludes, that wraps, wraps up this idea that we, at every moment, have the capacity to uncover this relationship that's inherently within us to rule our life, to really guide us that every moment our thoughts, speech, and action can be for Hashem. So now to conclude this entire narrative, I take you back to where we started from. Back to the desert at the end of 40 years. Moshe Rabbeinu. The great Moshe Rabbeinu, the great teacher Moses. After 40 years of being in the desert with these people and giving them the Torah and giving them the instructions, for 37 days before he passes away, Moshe makes the marathon goodbye speech. This speech is calculated, is recorded in Chumash Dvarim, the last of the Chumashim, the last of all of the five books of Moses is Moshe's speech, which he recounts every episode, every rebellion, every mitzvah, every annoying comment, every single thing that transpired with the desert, he recounts and he gives them motivation for the future. He gives them momentum. He says, even when I'm not here, you can still keep the mitzvahs, you can still keep this religion, you can still keep your connection to Hashem. And he gives them that, it's literally a motivational speech. And in this motivational speech, we started off these seven chapters by saying that it was there that Moshe promised the Jewish people that they can always The thing is close to you in your heart and in your mouth to do it. In your mouth and your heart to do it. Which means the, the body of Torah, the soul of Torah, there's two interpretations. We already went through this. The body of Torah is that every single mitzvah that Hashem gave you is accessible and you can actually... Uh, you could always do it. There's no such thing as Hashem gave you a commandment and you can't do it. You could always do it. The soul of Torah interpretation was that a connection to Hashem, which is deep within you, your Ava, your Yira, your love, your awe for Hashem, you could always access it. Well, how can you always access it? We just explain in these chapters. So the author Abba ends off going back to that same speech and he says, you know what? There was something else in that speech that's very, very interesting to note. It was at that speech, literally at the end of the 40 years, where Moshe Rabbeinu gives them the mitzvah to recite the Shema prayer in the morning and in the evening. The Shema prayer, which we have in the morning prayers, we have in the evening prayers. It's this prayer that's become the most holiest and special prayer amongst the Jewish people. It's with this prayer, it's with this prayer that the 
Jewish people walked into the gas chambers. is a prayer that every single Jew hopes that at the moment when their, when their soul leaves the body, they'll be saying this prayer. Why? Why? Because this prayer actually announces the idea, pronounces the idea of Achtas Hashem, of the oneness of Hashem. Shema Yisrael, hear Israel. You're talking to your Hashem, you're talking to yourself. Hear, O Israel. Hashem Elokeinu. Hashem, the force of Hashem, which is the unity of Hashem, the spiritual, the revealment of Hashem. The name Hashem is the name for the revealment. Elokeinu. Elokeinu is the name of Hashem of concealment. Hashem Echad is all one. And then what do we continue? The commandment, the Ahafta, as Hashem, Bechol, Levapcha, Bechol, Nafshepa, Bechol, Meodecha. Which means you must love Hashem. You have to keep this connection with Hashem, which is referring, amongst other, the Havim Esoteris, even at the point of giving up your life. Bechol, Levapcha, which means from both of your hearts, from both your souls, from, from with your physicality or spirituality, with the Nefshel, Kis Nefshel Bahamas, with the Yitzhari, Yitzhari, from all parts of you, you have to give it to Hashem. Bechol Navshecha, even at the point of giving up your life, you have to give it to Hashem. Bechol Meyadecha, even beyond that, even your possessions is one explanation, or even the inner explanation is even, even, even your impossible, the place where you think that's Ma'oyid, where it's more impossible, you have to give it to Hashem. It's a pronouncement of Mesiras Nepesh, as we started out saying, that is the highest, highest reach a Jew could reach, is never giving up his life for Hashem. Now I ask you, the Jews of the desert, I mean, I don't ask you, the Altarab is asking. Altarab asks, the Jews of the desert are the Jews who had a connection, an open connection with Hashem, saw all the miracles, they saw the giving of the Torah, they saw um, the, 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 the numerous, numerous instances, the giving of the man, miraculous, every single day. And they're coming with a promise a literal promise from the most holiest of prophets, the highest of prophets, that says that you're going to enter the land of Canaan, you're going to enter this land, you're going to conquer this land, and their enemies are going to run before you. You're going to be successful in your campaign in conquering Eretz Israel, in conquering the land of Israel. They're going to be scared of you. You're going to be absolutely successful. You have nothing to fear. What kind of mysterious are you telling these people? So Moshe Rabbeinu is telling these people that you should pronounce, you should have the intention of having mysterious nephews, of giving up your life, morning and night now for the rest of your lives. What's going on over here? What's going on? We're talking to a generation that, doesn't, that has never seen Messias Nevesh and is probably never going to see Messias Nevesh. The whole concept of Messias Nevesh giving up your life came much later. Says the Alter Rebbe, you know why? Because, the, because Moshe Rabbeinu is ending off his life with this speech. He's giving them the last will and testament. And his last will and testament is, is that Shema Yisrael which holds within it the concept of Messias Nefesh is not just at the moment of truth. It's not just when you're back into a corner. It's not just certain eras in history. It's for every single moment of a Jew's life. It is a foundational concept of Judaism. Messias Nefesh could be Messias Aratzen. You don't only have to die for a Jew, you can live for a Jew. You could access your Ava. You could access giving up that that connection with Hashem that gets exposed at the moment of truth when you have to give up your life, you could access that. You could access, tap into Messias Nevesh at any moment. And in fact, it's the foundation of all Judaism. The very fact that there could be people that could go through life and they can have every thought, every speech, every action only to God to keep all the mitzvahs, which is a very difficult thing. 
It's counterintuitive to, 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 to live a spiritual life, to live a good life, to live a moral life, to, do, to, to keep every single value. It's a very difficult thing that we all know that. The only way we're able to do that is because we can access the power of Messiris Nefesh, the power of this self-sacrifice, of the connection with Hashem, which gets inspired and aroused at, at, at the moment of truth. We can, we can access that at every moment. And that's why the mitzvah is morning and night. When the morning comes, when the night comes, you're going to say Shema. You're going to say Shema because the, it's the foundation of your Judaism. It's the foundation of your life. It's not just a pronouncement of, you know, when I'm, when, you know, I, I'm, I'm at my deathbed in the gas chamber or at a time when I have to renounce my faith and these things that are not, in our generation, we don't, we can't imagine that. It's just not part of life anymore. It's not that. It's every moment. It's morning and night. Morning and night. This concept of Shema Yisrael, Achtos Hashem, which can awaken your neshama deep down, which can awaken your red line at any moment, is accessible morning and night. It's accessible every single day. So that is the lesson. Now, from here on, chapters 26 and on, we're going to, we're going to segue into another element of the Tanya. We're going to stretch it from the how to the when. Okay? We're going to learn fascinating fascinating elements of the human makeup and we're going to um we're going to uh, uh ensure that we are in a healthy state of mind mentally healthy state of mind making sure we are mentally healthy at every time because this how this power this mental process only works on a person's mental health is at its normative optimal um uh, space so, and if a person is lacking that, we have to first take care of that. And that's what we're going to learn in the, next, in the coming chapters. So now, Tanya life, just to take this to life, the wisdom of this chapter in our relationship with Hashem, in our relationship with others, and with relationship with, with ourselves. So with, it, with the relationship with Hashem, what we ended off over here saying is um, um, the, 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 the fundamental fact that we can always return, we can always do Teshuvah. And this chapter, the Alter Rebbe, goes to the extreme that even those people who you thought that our sages are saying they cannot do teshuva because they, at the moment of sin, they make a calculation they can do teshuva, even they have teshuva accessible. It may be harder, but the point is that teshuva is accessible to any person at any point in life, at any juncture, at any space that they're in. Teshuva is always, always an option. Sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's harder, but it's always an option. Hashem's loving embrace is always open to us all at any moment. In terms of relationship with another, relationship with ourself, so um, um, what uh, we could take out from, uh, from the wisdom of chapter 25 is the fact that when we apply that framework as we explain, when we take the fact that we look at the whole world as a binary view, either it's, uh, it, either it's revealment or concealment, and we apply that to mean that everything we do is, is, is connection or disconnection. So we could learn that we're in relationship with others as well, as we noted with the, with the story with the, about the garbage bag, that every single relationship as well has its, its hierarchy of different uh, elements which make it very, you know, uh, uh, very overtly, uh, the end of the relationship to the one extreme. And then there's things that we do to each other all the time that uh, we think that it's not a, 
it's not a, it's not so bad. Nothing's going to happen. The relationship will stand. A relationship will be okay. That's not the way it works. A relationship has to be fostered. A relationship has to be constantly, constantly grown. But the key is, is that you have to be on the right train. That's the key. Where are you? It's not the, it's not the action. Action. The severity of the action. Nah, that's secondary. What's more primary is, are you on the train to making it better? Or are you static and you're okay and you can let it falter a bit? Are you headed that way or headed this way? There's a person on, on the ladder who was on rung 10 and a person on the ladder who was on rung 3. But the person on rung 10 is going down and the person on rung 3 is going up. Who's higher? Person on rung 3 because he's going up. So that's, uh, that's, um, that's with uh, um, um, in terms of relationship with another. In terms of relationship with yourself, how to view yourself in the world using the wisdom of this chapter. So we learn out that this is especially applicable to our generation, our times, when we're living in a world which, 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 which we're, we're born into this, we're used to it, it's hard to imagine otherwise. But anyone who's a student of history even a little bit could, 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 could just contemplate this fact that we are an anomaly, completely a novelty over here. This is like a, a speck. The past 90 years is a speck in all of history. And it is, it is never before that we have this even the Jews in the desert, by the way, had a Malik, had enemies that, that, that wanted to destroy them for just being Jewish. Here, there is no serious challenge to Judaism as Judaism. Yes, there's enemies. Yes, there's enemies. But there's, but there's, but, but, but there's nothing, nothing serious with, uh, uh, to, 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 the, to the majority of Jews. Yeah, there are pockets, correct. But we're talking about just one generation ago where you had the majority of Jews, literally the majority of Jews in countries which are, were, were either were, were hell-bent on either murdering them physically or spiritually. And we're living at a time when that's not the case. And therefore, the, 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 the mandate of this chapter has become amplified to degrees that have never been before. It's not just about Mr. Snevish giving up your life it's about Monsieur Saratzin. It's about align yourself with the will of Hashem, even at the pressures of assimilation, even at the pressures of society around you, which the more free it is, the harder it is to align yourself with God. That is, it has to be an internal pressure, not external pressure. And so it's, the, it's just the, the, the way we should view ourselves walking through life. We are in a generation which the calling has never been before, and therefore the empowerment has never been before like this. So... Be'ezras Hashem, with the help of God, may we succeed in this mandate.